0: Uh, thank you, Chairman, uh, and thank you for inviting me uh, to, the, to, this, uh, to this meeting. Um, there is another historian speaking today in another hotel, down the Gresham Hotel at 5.30. Uh, Dr. Ruan O'Donnell of the University of Limerick is uh, talking to a, an Ira Gee commemoration. I hope the first thing he will tell them, Ira Gee is a, a sort of a political um, uh, anti-peace process organisation uh, which has no connection whatsoever uh, with other anti uh, peace process uh, organisations such as the Real IRA and so on. Uh, but I, um I looked at their website this morning because I, I saw Ruin's name, and amongst other things, they, in their contemporary coverage of affairs, they speak of, of events in Northern Ireland at present and they talk of the British police, right? Which, of course, is that it, to me is an absurdity. So I hope Ruin O'Donnell, who is, after all, a professional historian, that the first thing he will do uh, at the Irigy uh, Event, which is folks on 1913, is point out that the, the, the police uh, in, in, in Northern Ireland today, by and large, and the police in this island 100 years ago, were not British police. They were overwhelmingly Irish police. And they overwhelmingly belonged, in a sense, to the communities, plural, that they came from. And it is a pity that in the 21st century, the minister was here earlier and has prudently left because he said, uh, I heard him say, the history that is not debated is history that is lost. Well, if he had stayed, I would have thanked him for that phrase and then asked him, Well, how is it that what is this government going to do with history in the secondary curriculum? What is it committed to doing? To removing it as a core subject at junior cert level. Yes, so it may, it may, this is. And you'll, every minister. And every politician of every persuasion will be, for the next 10 years, will be boring as silly, losing their speaking notes and so on, and going on and on, and then uh, uh, eating up the time that should be devoted to people like me. And, <laughs> uh, and, and at the same time, as they are talking the value of history, and I know that Taoiseach, for example, is absolutely personally deeply interested in history, particularly in the War of Independence and so on, and I've lobbied him about issues, and he's been very receptive. And yet, they are, they are taking history out of the core subject effectively saying this is not a core educational value, and it's being replaced by stuff like entrepreneurship or, you know, self-motivation, these kind of thrashy kind of approaches to education which will disappear. In 10 years, it'll be something else, right? Now, I'm not arguing for the restoration of Latin, although personally, I think it was... the only subject I was good at, at school, but I, th- I, I do think it appalling that I say precisely when we're kicking off what is known as the Decade of Commemorations, that the first effective statutory act uh, on, the, on the state's part is to take history o- o- off the core curriculum. So if you have any influence, as I'm sure you do, uh, uh, we have movers and shakers here like Robin who can he can, if he can knock down the screen, surely he can <laughs> hammer on a minister's door. I, I, do, I do hope that the, 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 the sense of shock of the wider, of, of wider Irish society in the north as well as in the south, in, in Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom as well as in this republic, that we at the same time as you preach the, the after vital importance for the present and the future, as you were saying, of, of knowing our history, our histories plural and of exploring them, rather than simply uh, reciting uh, old, old uh, uh, clichés and so on in a very uh, uncritical way, that at the same time uh, we, the, the, the Irish state is doing its best systematically uh, to root the opportunities for young people to learn, as it were, the basics uh, of, of uh, not only of Irish history but of world history. It seems to me extraordinary. Okay, I'm here to talk about the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, and I don't know about you, and uh, some of you, for all I know, are descendants of... Uh, not of Rasputin, but of you know the Tsar and so on. But I'm proud to say that I have, I have blue blood and bottle green blood in my veins. And I also have uh, sort of, in the sense that uh, my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather's name was Hapney. He and his brother, two Hapneys make a copper, uh, became RIC men in the late 19th century. Uh, my, my, my grandfather, his son, uh, Huey, uh, became an IRA officer in County Down until he came south in 1922, then guess what he became? He became a sergeant in the guards and so on, right? And I think that that, that exemplifies, and you find these kind of narratives throughout, uh, for example, accounts, family accounts of the War of Independence and so on, but throughout family accounts of the First World War, you have the same kind of people. Now, primarily it's men in those days because women weren't admitted uh, to the sacred uh, business of policing until very recently. Uh, but you find, you find the same thing. You will have brothers uh, Fathers, sons who are technically on, on a sense of different sides of the great, of the great uh, issues which divided Ireland, because they happened to join the army, right? because they happened to join the police, and are because in some cases, uh, they happened, happened to join the IRA. sometimes afterwards they uh, moving on again and becoming policemen. The man who we believe fired the fatal shot that killed Michael Collins in August 1922, uh, um, Sonny O 'Neill was an anti-treaty IRA man, he was an ex-RIC man, and he was an ex-British soldier, right? So he was in some ways a target. He could have been as an ex. -ex Ex-soldiers were typically quite suspect, and quite a few were killed. Supposed informers are spies, obviously he wasn't. Uh, Ex-policemen were sometimes suspect in the War of Independence. Only a few got shot, but they were to some extent menaced and their families menaced, right? But equally, do you see what I mean? The loyalties are, are, uh, are very hard things to, f- to figure out uh, uh, when, you, when you go into family history. And I think those of us interested in the past, in you know, warts and all, right? Uh, it's, it's very important, I think, particularly in relation to the history of policing in Ireland, but also in relation to the impact on families of, of where your, your parents happened to live or where uh, the profession that your father uh, happened to follow, uh, there's a whole, there's a whole range of hidden histories here that we that really don't that aren't as yet being mentioned in terms of the decade of commemorations. Which is starting in some ways very interestingly. I was out here uh, last week uh, at um, the, the lockout commemoration, which was a kind of a straightforward, uh, um, uh, in a sense, predictable sort of expiration of of the events of of of. Uh, of, of uh, of the end, at the end of August 1913, although, to be fair, the organiser, Paul Gates, continuously and coherently argues against the traditional view of, of 1913 as somehow being part of the Irish National Revolution, right? Uh, but he gets drowned out in putting on the parade and having the, uh, you know, having the, the fake baton charge and all that kind of stuff and dressing up in the 19, 1913 clothes. And we're going to have a lot of dressing up and reenactments, right, over the next number of years. I hope you keep, ladies, you, you, you've prepared your wardrobes or whatever, um, uh, because you're going to need them uh, for, to dress up as uh, Countess Markovich, for example, uh, or as uh, the, the men we have to do 1916, we're going to be Irish volunteers, we're going to be uh, British Army, we're going to be DMP. There's going to be a whole very public, very visible, and often very interesting set of, set of enactments, but they are all going to be accused of oversimplifying, Right and inevitably they will oversimplify. That doesn't mean they're bad. right? I personally don't mind commemorations and so on, if, particularly if they don't go on too long. The lockout went on a long time, but so did the lockout commemoration. right? Every, we were all getting a bit cold and restless. I actually snuck off because uh, I knew there was a baton charge coming and I didn't want to be part of it. <laughs> But we must remember. I I think it's wrong. Some people, after the 1798, uh, historians were looked down their noses very much at popular commemoration and so on, right? And said it was contributing the troubles uh, to to, to divisions and misunderstandings in Irish history and wider society, rather than the opposite. I think enactments, however partisan, however, however ahistorical in fact they are, are are, it's fine by me. uh, But. but don't, don't say that this is the only history that there is of these events and so on. Right? I hope you agree with me. So to talk a bit about the RIC, I won't go, I'll only talk for about 15 minutes or so, so you may have to shut me up, uh, Chairman. Um, so please do. Um, the RIC was, on the one hand, we know, a national force. But it had one chronic organisational weakness. And we're in it and that is Dublin. I think that the the point, I mean, I think part of the history of the Irish Revolution is that that the the more effective and more astute police force in Ireland couldn't operate in Dublin City, right? And that meant that that, uh, Dublin City, which was, to you quote a British document about 1920, uh, the centre of the conspiracy, Right? That a police force, which in a sense was—it seems to me the RIC, uh, in some ways, to to some extent, the the, the, you would go on to the RUC and now probably the PSNI, and you certainly go on to the guards. An Irish policeman, north or south, still has—and I say still, right—has antennae, and I don't mean from his mobile phone or whatever. Has antennae, which a typical English constable won't have. I don't know if you'd agree, but it's, I think it's absolutely the case. If you'd just, just be unimaginable, uh, uh, that, that I was, I, I won't say a victim, I dealt with the English police a couple of times was a student in Cambridge, and they, they, I wasn't in trouble, I promise, but they were absolutely, just a completely different way of looking at the public. It wasn't that they were disrespectful or whatever, but they weren't inquisitive, right? And policemen, who, as you know, Irish police, I don't expect anybody to reply those who are ex-police because you never say anything, right? <laughs> but you ask a lot of questions, right? And policing is partly about understanding and reading the tea leaves and, and positioning and knowing whose that is and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of policing, I think, uh, was exemplified by the way the RIC operated, which was why it became such a target, not only of attack, but a target of, 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 uh, anti- of, of Republican invective, Right? The police were feared, uh, Not, not uh, the police became objects of attack, obviously because they were symbols of authority, but also because they were the arm of government which knew the people. Do you follow me? In a way that the army didn't. I mean, it's very striking, even during the War of Independence, I've just finished a huge study of fatalities arising from political violence from 1916 to 1921. In most parts of Ireland, including in Dublin, most of the time an off-duty soldier was completely safe. No, there are very few cases where off-duty so- soldiers were were grabbed in a pub or in the street and shot dead or anything like that, right? Because and that was partly, partly at least, because the, the, the army wasn't a threat in the sense that it didn't it didn't connect locally in the same way, right? Whereas the point about policing is the it's the job of the policeman be a lowly, lowly guard or constable or a sergeant or whatever that level is to know their area and to know the people and to know what's happening to know why things are happening do you know what I mean it's that they're curious people say that call them an alien force they lived in barracks as we know unless until they got married as you said they had to get permission it seems extraordinary now they had to get their superior's permission to the choice of bride but then I was talking uh, recently, as it happened to, to the nephew of a man who was killed after the kill Michael ambush, but this, this man worked in, in, in Hong Kong in the 1960s for a firm called Jardine Matheson, right, who huge. We've heard of Jardine Matheson, one of the giant uh, uh, sort of commercial enterprise of the British Empire. And what did he do in 1968 when he met his, 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 his uh, lay woman who became his wife? What did he have to do in 1968? He had to write to Lord Keswick saying, this is the woman I propose to marry, is that okay? So it's not only, uh, in, uh, as it were, because uh, in, in 19th or 20th century Irish policing, that, that the respectability of your, your chosen one uh, uh, comes into play. Um, anyway, to, to, to move on. So, so the police and politics. It seems to me that the RIC was inherently a more politically attuned force than was the Dublin Metropolitan Police which which looked after Dublin. Now we know that in Dublin there was the Detective Division, the G Division. We know that within that there was a handful, basically, of people, perhaps 10, 11, 12, who more or less specialised in what might be called political crime and subversion. Effectively, they were kind of special branch, right? But what they didn't do... uh, there was no integrated system for looking, despite, the, obviously, Ireland's potential for rebellion of one sort or another and for subversion. There was, there was no system by which, by which, for example, the DMP, the Dublin police and the RIC exchanged information, right? Now, this is always a problem. It was a problem in the north during the Troubles to get, get different forces to talk to each other, to get different parts of different, the same force to talk to each other, to get the guards to talk to the RIC. These things always happen. But it is, it is extraordinary that at no point was there a unified uh, uh, pli- uh, policing system in this country. I personally believe that had the RIC been running Dublin as well, it's very unlikely that the Irish Revolution would have taken the course that it did. I really, I really don't think so. I, I, I think the RIC were better at dealing with political crime and reading the tea leaves than than were um, than were the DMP, who were essentially an English municipal, an English-style municipal force, right? Who were there to get drunks off the streets, right? To enforce the bylaws about horses and all that kind of stuff, right? But they weren't they weren't an armed force as we know, and they were they really were were a public order force, not 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 any, not not to do with anything to do with higher politics. Um, so, so that's my fir- first point, uh, I think we have to say, look at, looking at the RIC. The second point is to look at who the RIC were, and thanks to Jim especially, we know a huge amount about them, the practicalities of who they were, where they came from, the kind of backgrounds they came from. And by and large, I don't I think you'd agree, Jim, they're, they're typically country fellows, wouldn't you say, rather than town or city, city, city boys. Uh, uh, the majority are Catholic, from, from a kind of Catholic not impoverished, but Catholic kind of farming backgrounds, typically, again, wouldn't you say? You know, overwhelming. Again, like my, my great-grandfather's brothers were. You know, they had, there was a farm somewhere. It wasn't a tiny farm. It wasn't a huge farm. But there probably wasn't big enough to support them all or whatever. And, and uh, so they went in. They went in, which meant they were of good character. They had to be recommended by some, some uh, RAC officer or, uh, to get into the first place. <coughs> So they were close enough to the people they were policing. And I think this is an important point, notwithstanding that they couldn't work in the areas they came from or once they married where their wives were from. They still knew the kind of people they were dealing with. Do you know what I mean? This was not like going to Iraq and trying to figure out who are these people. Right? Uh, and I do think that's why they're feared and so on. I think also uh, that, that uh, because of the, the experience of, of the RIC in 19- with disbandment in 1922... Uh, and because uh, some but not all of them uh, felt they had to leave Ireland for fear of victimisation and victimisation there clearly was some victimisation and so on there was also compensation available for people who were victimised and and one of the difficulties with compensation schemes is that they have a way of of, um, I have to be very careful here of flushing out victims that that that, you know, that mightn't, mightn't otherwise have appeared. They, that Sometimes they, they, the, the victimisation gets documented in a certain way in order to make a legal case and so on. Do you know what I mean? I think we have to be careful in wondering how... But uh, what, we, what, what we don't have to be careful about is saying that there's plenty of evidence that, pl- that policemen and their families in some parts of Ireland, right, and from some, and from some, some sectors, of the New Ireland came under, under some kind of pressure. I don't know how long it lasted, and I don't know the practical consequences, right? Uh, but definitely there was, a, was a, an element of victimization, if you like. And uh, there was also a slur. My, my, uh, in 1969, when the Northern Troubles began, one of my many O'Helpen uncles in Letterkenny decided to get involved in local politics uh, uh, as a sort of a, a peacenik, because he worked in Derry. And one of the things put about him, I can may, uh, put about against him, by uh, Bernie McLynchy, the owner of the Golden Grill and a very significant figure in Letterkenny politics, if you can imagine such a thing, was that my, grandma, my uncle's father, my grandfather, was supposedly an ex-RIC man. Now, he got elected anyway. I think he became chairman of the, of the Urban Council for, for a while. But it was interesting that that was a card worth playing. You know, he was only a Peeler's son. In fact, it, it wasn't, it was his grandfather was the RIC man. His father had been a guard and an IRA man. But... Um, I don't know if it's still the case, but for everybody, we will, we will in 1916, uh, we will see, uh, we hear now from them, uh, for example, the relatives of people who, who died in 1916 on the, on the separatist side, right, of whom I think I can't remember about 61 or 62, the number's kind of problematic. There are over 200 civilians who died in 1916 in the streets of Dublin, May, almost all of them we don't know how they died. In most cases, you can't say who shot who or anything like that, right? But they just die in crossfire. They die in fires or whatever, right? I, re- I suggested last year to uh, Dublin City Council, who were not impressed. Uh, Jim O'Callaghan, uh, <coughs> with whom I used to play soccer, was particularly unimpressed. Uh, that, that, that's what, what, what Dublin City Council should do for 1916, is concentrate on the citizens of Dublin who died, right? Rather than simply doing another statue of Patrick Pearce or whatever, why not, why not enumerate, identify the people, the civilians who died? i say over 200 of them. And they didn't all die, you know, at British hands. You know, the first of the first four deaths in the rising, uh, the first two policemen to die, uh, o- o- Constable O'Brien outside Dublin Castle, an armed policeman shot in circumstance where he could certainly have been overpowered, uh, Lehi from Stevens Green, shot by the Citizen Army, again, in circumstances when he could have been overpowered, uh, and two civilians, a man called um, Kevin, I think was his name, an elderly man who had a handcart with, with theatrical props on it, right? And the Citizen Army took the cart against his will to make a barricade. This is near the Shelburne Hotel, and he started arguing with them, and he took, took the cart back. And it appears as though they'd said, oh, you can take your props, but leave the, leave the cart, but he took the whole thing. So they fired him a warning shot, and he kept going. And then they they fired and they killed him. Right? This is the citizen army. This is the, the Republic. Will not dishonor, you know, in the proclamation. It, it, it's caused by whatever. Use the three terms. These are the people. That the proclamation said, "We won't behave like the Huns, as it were." we'll obey the rules of war. So an elderly civilian from pulling away a cart, is killed. Again up uh, uh, near Earthford Terrace, a man is out walking with, with his wife, a 38-year-old man whose name now escapes me, and he's asked to help in pulling cars, I think, from Huey's garage to make a barricade, and he says, no, I don't want anything to do with this, and he's shot dead. Now, we should remember those, those civilians, whoever should kill them, just as much as we should remember Patrick Pierce. Or Thomas McDonough, or whatever. Or later on, we would come, come to the War of Independence. Uh, my my great uncle Kevin Barry, whose coffin I helped to carry out with my Joy. Uh, it's fine to remember him, but we should also remember the was it Harold Washington, one of the people, he, soldiers he probably killed, was 15, 15. You know. And so, so I, I, I'm drifting away from the particulars of, 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 of the police and their families. But I think that, that for commemoration is fine, reenactments are fine, but only insofar as they enable us to explore the actual history, including the histories of families. You know, I, I made a, a, a television program some months ago, and I was astonished by the number of people who got in touch with me afterwards saying, that was my great uncle, I heard a story about a neighbor, and so on. Do you know what I mean? And these aren't, these aren't, this wasn't a, as it happens, these were people who, 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 primarily people whose families, who were talking about deaths, which they thought were caused caused by the IRA, but they could equally have been people uh, whose families had suffered at the hands of Crown Forces. In some cases, people we don't know who did the killing, right? But the point is, the memory lives on, and the memory lives on presumably just as much in police families as in Republican families like mine. (laughs) Right, just as much in army families as in Republican families like mine, do you see what I mean uh, so I think I think uh, in in this decade of commemoration, no doubt Irigy are equally broad minded uh, on this uh, we, 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 What we should do is explore the past right and learn from, learn what we can from the past and honor the the different memories and the different versions of the different views because some people will say so-and-so was a, mar- you know, a martyr or whatever for Old Ireland, another murder for the Crown. Others will say, well, maybe, you know, but he's also a victim of circumstances. This is the case of Kevin Barry. He's also, in, in my family's case, just to finish with the Kevin Barry story, I heard endlessly about Kevin Barry from his sister, my grandmother. I never heard about Paddy Maloney, my grandfather's brother, who was killed in the 1st of May 1921 outside Tipperary Town. Why didn't I hear about him? Because my grandma wasn't interested in her, in this dead brother in law, right? Because he was, he, well, I think it's because he wasn't very important. He was just a captain. Do you know what I mean? So, with families, as, as well as, as wider uh, society and as well as political organizations, have an ability not only to keep the memory going, but to suppress the memory. I don't know, some of you may have seen about two months ago, I published in the Irish Times a story about the late Sean Lamas, which it turns out his, his family didn't know. I just came across in, in official records, in inquest records, that in January 1916, Sean LaMass, then 16, had, had accidentally shot his two-year-old brother dead in the family home. And this is all in the records, in the newspapers at the time. And yet, it, I'm pretty sure, almost none of his grandchildren knew this, and I don't think his surviving daughter knew it, right? Because it just wasn't talked about. It wasn't, wasn't cut out. Nobody had gone into the records after independence and taken out the rec- inquest or anything like that. It's all It was all in the documents. But think there are stories in families that, do you know what I mean? That families, for one reason or another, don't, don't, don't hear, that you might know, but your cousins don't, and vice versa. And part of the decade of commemoration, and particularly for those of us who are getting older, some of us, you all are, obviously none of you are ever going to get old, but I'm getting older by, by, by the year, right? And if we don't start uh, you know, checking the coverts of family narratives and so on, right? who will? And if we don't write down our document what we know, it doesn't matter if it's different than what historians say. Do you know what I mean? If we don't do it, uh, who will? And in this connection, I will come back to the police now. I know because I've drifted away, Chairman, completely from what I meant to talk about. But it's, it's all to do with history. In this connection, there's an extraordinary uh, uh, initiative which the government has undertaken called the Military Service Pensions Project, right? Uh, where, the, where over th- about 300,000 records relating to pension applications to do with the period from 1916 to 1923 have now been prepared for release. And it's a fantastic development. The T-shirt was briefed on two years ago, he and was, he was, uh, they, they, they've now come up with the money... Uh, to build, to fit out a building in the military archives where this material will be able will be visible in about three or four years, uh, uh, but they've also digitised a huge amount of the 1916 material and it's all ready to go. So a lot of this will be online. A lot more will you'll have to go and look at the records. This was to be launched last year, right? Okay, I mean, they put off, the, I mean, I thought it was, you know, the Easter Rising, part of the disaster of the Rising, from the, from the separate point of view, is that it was postponed by a day. Well, the launch of the, these vital records of the 1916 Rising have been postponed now by over a year, right? And they keep changing the date. Uh, and uh, uh, so, for example, there's a catalogue of, of these records, well, a, an introduction, a guide, which I wrote a, 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 a contributed to, and it's dated 19 tw- 2012. And this is enormous. I mean, this will change our, not only the, our history of the Irish Revolution, but it could change your, your history because you'll find things about your great grandmother. Do you know? And so on, right? Because they're incredibly detailed. You think pensions files are boring. Well, of course, as we get older, we get more interested in pensions files anyway. They're not boring at all, right? They have much more accounts. They may be, for example, I found the. the, the, the the IRA killing of one of two alleged informers, spies in, in Leitrim during the War of Independence, and they are incredibly detailed, and quite moving accounts. They say, well, they had one account of killing a man called John Harrison, who, who, whose offence really was that he hadn't paid, contributed to an IRA arms fund. They took what they called his best cow. They then a Protestant clergyman mediated, so he got back the best cow and he gave them a, a pound and he gave them a gun. But they reckoned he had another gun and they wanted it. So it gets out of hand in the end. After about a year, they kill him. They took him out. And the, the, man, the man who killed him says, "I took him. he begged us not to kill him, but I said we have to carry out our orders. I also said he'd need no coat. Right? So they took him out and killed him. It's amazing. And that's in a pensions file. right? And those pensions files are waiting to be released. Where's the minister? You see, the ministers are cute enough. <laughs> right? They're never here when you need them. And, and uh, they're just sitting because all we need is for Defence and the Department of the Taoiseach to agree, oh, who's going to launch this? And when are we going to do it? They have, the GPO has been ready this long time for this, this launch. And the point is, once you see these records, because for some of you, it could, you know, whether it's a neighbour, whether it's a relative, these are incredibly detailed. They're quite different to the Bureau of Military History State. They're just extraordinarily detailed. My own, for example, my, um, my grandfather Jim Maloney's one there's a, a verbatim transcript of an interview with him by the pensions board and it's saying you say you did this, can you prove it? There's, inter- verbatim, there's interviews with his, with his senior officers wi- without him present, there's confidential references, there's all this kind of stuff and it's all ready to go and it's been all ready to go for over a year but, and the government haven't taken a decision on it. Right? And they've spent the money so it's not the IMF and it's not the budget, it's just, you know... It's politics, they're waiting for a suitable anniversary.
1: Yeah, but they were... Yeah, but with the
0: census from the 1920s. But, but we were meant to have it in... Ready the, to roll. But they, we had at, it was going to happen at Easter. Easter has some sort of resonance. It was lots of times it was going to happen. But all I'm saying is, get on to, get on to your wretched politicians and say, why can't... I? Because as we get older, we get fewer, right? If you know what I mean. And when we go, and an awful lot of assumed knowledge and bits and pieces and parts of, of, and it could be of a family jigsaw, they go with you, right? You can't leave your memories, right? And you can't, and there'll be things you'll find, as I say, in the case of the Mass family, that was from inquest records, not from these pension records. But there's things, there's material in the public domain and in the state's domain which will tell you a lot and will explain things whether it's the political history of your parish, or whether it's what happened to your great uncle. I was contacted two years ago by a woman, with grandso- the granddaughter of a man called Buntrock, OK? I had heard of Buntrock only because he was killed outside Tipperary Town in an ambush organized by my grandfather in November 1920. Right? So I was able to tell her a lot about Buntrock, where he was buried, all this kind of stuff. And I was able to add, and by the way, my grandfather, Jim Maloney, was the intelligence officer who set up that ambush. And she, got, she was writing from Essex. She just wrote back. She didn't say, oh, how interesting. Tell me more. She just back said back, thank you. Right? I recently met the, the nephew of a man called Guthrie who escaped from the Kilmichael ambush but was killed the next day. Right? So it's not only in Ireland and for Irish people. And these records will just absolutely transform and they're sitting there ready to go. Anyway, I've gone on too long on this. I'll just go back to the police briefly. Can I, chairman? Three minutes to the next tape change. OK, three minutes, right. Well, I say the same thing over and over again. I'll say a little bit about the, about the RIC and the rising. One of the un- unremarked, except by me, consequences of the rising was that there was a conscious effort to change the RIC. The RIC, the new Inspector General of the RIC after the rising, was a man called Colonel or, or Brigadier Joseph Byrne, right? Now, we don't have to be very Irish to figure out his denomination. So he's a Catholic. He's an Irish Catholic put in charge of the RIC for the first time. The, 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 in Dub- Dublin Castle, the, the, the administration is, is not reformed but changed a bit. Uh, the, the new undersecretary, the head of administration in Dublin Castle, is an Englishman, uh, educated in Manchester, went to St. Bede's, Bede's College or whatever, uh, and then joined the Home Office. His name was Sir William Byrne. Would anybody care to tell me what his religion was? Right? Uh, the Attorney General. To James O'Connor, right? you get uh, the, G- the GOC appointed uh, after uh, after the riding, when Friend goes, obviously Maxwell is here for a while but leaves when he's suppressed the, the outbreak, uh, the new GOC from 1916 to 1918, later a member of the Senate, another reason that the Minister, alas, <coughs> cleared off. Um, the brown man, right? So you have this curious thing that in the forces of law and order, like the machinery of a, a British oppression or whatever you want to call it, it is it, it, consciously there's a conscious switch. Now it makes no difference; nobody's noticed this except me. But they obviously, they, they London obviously, they're all, crikey. We have to have an administration that gets more in touch with the people and so on. But what they didn't do, which I think they should have done, was. Was to, in some way, amalgamate the RIC and the DMP, particularly in relation to political crime. Because it's uh, this ludicrous hiatus where you'd be followed. some, you know, <coughs> people uh, from the most active, active areas in the country would come to Dublin and there would be the responsibility of a different police force to try to watch them and so on. So it's highly inefficient. Uh, and the RIC, after the writing, did try to make some changes, but just to show how difficult it was, trying to get telephones into, into police stations which didn't have them already. You have to get. I mean, they, you think the volunteers are your trouble? No, no, no. Uh, the IRA, it's the British Treasury every time. Well, the R, the RIC attempt to buy a card index, which is the basis of policing, because the problem with policemen in Ireland, which is why the killings in one thousand, nine hundred and sixteen in Dublin were significant of policemen, is that policemen carry a lot of what they know where in their head. So you shoot the policeman, you shoot his memory. Well, once you start carding it. Right? which is what the British Army did, contrary to our national narrative. Uh, from the autumn of 1920, the British Army systematically start collecting information all over the country. They start systematically, when they arrest somebody, they photograph them, they fingerprint them, whatever. So even if the arresting officer gets shot, or even if the local RIC guy who could identify him, oh, that's Jim, gets shot. He's now carded. Do you see what I mean? You can't shoot a card index. right? But when they want to get a card index for a Crime Special Branch, they're told that they said it'll cost £30. And the Treasury, in the end, there has been a rebellion in Ireland and so on, says, OK, you can spend the £30 as long as you save the money somewhere else. Right? So the IMF, are, you know, uh, they're only following in, in an honourable tradition. OK, so, so, so just finally, finally about policing, I think that there's an enormous link a legacy, not only in personnel between the RIC and the RUC and the RIC and the Guards. I think they'll recognise me, even though it's 100 years on, that, that, that if you could bring, bring a, a, a middle-ranking RIC man of the 19, say, 1912, 13, 14 forward, he would make more sense of, uh, he would understand a lot about policing in Ireland today. Right Notwithstanding obviously everything that has changed utterly. I think that think the, 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 the traditions of policing maybe uh, say notwithstanding all the changes, I think, think I, uh, policing in Ireland is recognizably more like policing in Ireland 100 years ago, say, than policing in England is like that Ireland, policing in Ireland is like policing in England. Do You follow me, because our policemen still have, despite technology, despite rule books, despite everything. I think the policemen on both, both parts of Ireland, both the British police, as I really call them absurdly, uh, and the Garthy down here, they still have, if you like, political antennae and communal antennae, which are utterly alien uh, to, uh, uh, to police forces, certainly such as, such as we see uh, the length and of breadth of, Breath of Britain. And personally, uh, civil liberties aside, I, I think that's a good thing. Thank you.